A great question from a viewer today. Where did the idea of purgatory come from? Well, we'll tackle that on Wisdom 828, where we're dedicated to stamping out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. Hi, I'm Bob Buchanan. Our viewer wants to know about the origin and the teaching of purgatory. Is there a Bible verse, the person asks, or did it just come from someone who thought it would be a good idea to have a plan B for eternity? Well, it's interesting that this question uh, came um, on the last weekend of October 31st. Uh, October 31st commemorates Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses on the University of Wittenberg's uh, church door in 1517. Luther's uh, purpose was to start a debate on the doctrine of indulgences that were promo uh, promoted and sold by Cardinal Johann Tetzel. Uh, that's a little background for those who are unfamiliar with the Roman Catholic teaching on indulgences, and it may be helpful. Uh, the sale of the indulgences arose uh, during the Middle Ages as a way for people to earn remission for sins. And the idea was uh, first preached by Pope Urban II in AD 1095 to those who wanted to participate in a crusade. And as time went on, the indulgences were granted for such things as pilgrimages, and they could uh, be conferred on the dead in purgatory and eventually became sold uh, from the so-called treasury of merits, a cash of remission uh, that accrued through the deaths of Christ and the martyrs. Well, people purchased these indulgences to have masses said for their dead loved ones who were in purgatory so that they might be released from those punishments. Uh, when German people purchased the indulgences from Cardinal Tetzel, they also became very familiar with his uh, famous promotional jingle, uh, when the coin in the coffer rings, another soul from pur purgatory springs. So, what is the official doctrine of indulgences according to the Roman Catholic Church? One Roman Catholic website said this, the reality of purgatory is a definitive teaching of the church, binding upon the belief of all Catholics and uh, pronounced by the catechism of the Catholic Church. And the catechism says, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter into the joys of heaven. Now the Catechism admits that Jesus, and this is a quote, by his cross atoned for our sins and his mercy forgives our sins if we repent of them. God's justice, however, requires us to suffer a purification for our sins. The consequences. If we do not satisfy God's justice in this life, God allows us to satisfy it in the next, in purgatory, where God's mercy and justice meet. Now, purgatory is a place where people, presumably Catholics, are punished and uh, therefore purged from their venial sins, satisfying God's justice, even after they have been pardoned by God. Uh, for those who need uh, help in understanding the nature of a venial sin, it's a sin that is not consciously cho uh, a consciously chosen act that's contrary to God's moral law. It's uh, less sinful than a sin committed willfully uh, by some malicious intent. Uh, that's called a mortal sin. It's the difference between cursing out that driver who cut you off in traffic versus ramming your car into that driver as an act of road rage and hoping to cause him physical harm. 
souls in purgatory must suffer for their sins to prepare them for heaven. That uh, suffering may include a deep sense of being deprived of the greatest longing, which is to be in heaven. Other sufferings include intense shame and remorse, uh, fire, hunger, thirst, stench, darkness, cold, isolation, uh, and uncertainty about the time of release. Souls in purgatory can commune with their guardian angels, with St. Joseph, particular saints, and Jesus himself. They say Mary, the mother of Jesus, regularly visits to console them, especially on Christmas, when many souls are released from purgatory. The souls communicate with and comfort each other, and with God's permission may visit those of us on earth. Now, how did this doctrine develop? The Roman Catholic Church formulated the doctrine of purgatory first at the Council of Florence from 1439 to 1441. The council was convened to heal the rift between the Eastern Orthodox and the Western churches, and the healing didn't last long. But it was the all-important Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563 that ratified the doctrine into canon law. The Council of Trent was convened as a counter-reformation to the expansion of the Protestant Reformation begun by Martin Luther. It was Luther who challenged the sale of indulgences to spring another soul from purgatory. So Trent condemned and refuted the beliefs of Protestants such as Luther and John Calvin and others. You may be interested to know that the council also decreed that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from anything else, including good works, was condemned as heresy. And the church has not changed its mind on that position for 458 years. The council also affirmed that the books of the Apocrypha rejected by the reformers are a part of the canon of scripture. And this is important because when it comes to the doctrine of purgatory, the Apocrypha plays a vital role. The Roman Catholic Church also claims historic tradition for the doctrine. And so we need to ask the question, did the early church claim the existence of purgatory? Well, the short answer is no. But did the early church fathers encourage prayers for dead Christians? Well, there is some evidence in the writings of the church fathers of the second to the fourth centuries AD, including men like Origen and Augustine and Aquinas that allowed for prayers for the dead. Church historians believe that the practice began as a way of commemorating the death of martyrs on the anniversary of their deaths, but it morphed into um, believing that Christians might ask the martyrs to pray for them, and then it morphed further again into prayers for them. Well, the Roman Catholic Church calls upon the history as part of its authority for the doctrine, using the idea of praying for the dead as evidence that purgatory must exist because there'd be no reason to pray for them otherwise. Additionally, the church rests its argument on four very significant spiritual experiences in the lives of its prominent saints. Tradition teaches that St. Thomas Aquinas was visited by his sister who implored him to say masses for her so she could be released from purgatory. St. Gertrude the Great, who died in 1301, said that Jesus appeared to her and said, quote, I accept with highest pleasure what is offered to me for the poor souls, for I long inexpressibly to have near me those for whom I paid a great price. And she interpreted this to mean that Catholics needed to pray earnestly for the release of souls from purgatory. 
St. Catherine of Genoa, who died in 1500, had a vision of the three levels of purgatory, a dark and particularly intense place of torment with quite long stays, to a moderate place of less intensity and duration, to a, a lighter place of briefer duration. And finally, St. Faustina, who died in 1938, was shown by her guardian angel, the souls of purgatory, pleading with her to get people to pray for them for their release. Now, as I mentioned, the use of the Apocrypha is important to support this doctrine. The main text comes from the book of 2 Maccabees chapter 12, and it says, Judas, the ruler of Israel, also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking for that splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in uh, godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. Now, notice that this text says nothing at all about a purgatory, but it is assumed. The two books of Maccabees were written about 100 BC, and they chronicle the events of the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid dynasty from 175 to 134 BC. These two books, along with others, are part of a canon of scripture in the Greek Orthodox, the Coptic, the Russian Orthodox, and Roman Catholic churches. However, they were rejected during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Two New Testament texts are used to support the doctrine of purgatory. One is Matthew 12, which plainly says, on the day of judgment, everyone will give account to the Lord for even the words that they have chosen to speak. Now, there's nothing in there about an intermediate state of cleansing by fire in purgatory before entering heaven. And again, it's assumed. Now, the other is 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, in which Paul argues that no other foundation than Christ can be laid in the work of ministry. He warns ministers to be careful how they build on that foundation because each minister's work will be examined and shown to be either gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. But the context is clear that the examination happens upon Jesus' return. But even if a believer's work is the fuel for the fire kind, you know, the wood, hay, or stubble, that believer will be saved. It says absolutely nothing about purging the sins of the believer before he or she can uh, gain entrance into heaven. It's an examination of the quality of the believer's service in life. So, what should believers think of purgatory? Well, first, there is nothing in scripture, including the Apocrypha, which Protestants don't submit to as authoritative anyway about purgatory. The word simply doesn't appear in scripture. Now, defenders of the doctrine of purgatory will point out that neither does the word Trinity appear in scripture, granted, but the inner logic of scripture says nothing at all about a state of purification and punishment between death and heaven thereby whereby believers atone for their own sins before entering into heaven. Second, the plain things are always the main things. Paul says quite plainly in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 
Upon death, the soul of the believer goes to be with Jesus, enjoying the fruit of salvation. And one day, the culmination in the new heavens and new earth, when there will be no more pain, suffering, death, or sin. Third, the New Testament affirms that while believers are saved, we're not yet perfectly holy. We are justified sinners. And the writer to the Hebrews says that believers in Christ are sanctified. In chapter 10, he writes, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That word there, sanctified, is stressed in a way that means it's a done deal. Then he writes that the reason for, about the reason for this sanctification, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected all those uh, for all time who are being sanctified. So believers have been both sanctified and are being sanctified. In other words, the work of Jesus to cleanse us from our guilt and our sin has already taken place, and it's also taking place in our lives. We are propositionally and positionally holy before God as the Spirit works in us day by day to transform us into what we really are in Christ. Now, my next argument comes from Luther himself. Let's suppose that the merits of Jesus' death and resurrection were only 98% effective for the salvation of sinners. And we sinners need to add our 2%. Then Luther asks, what's the point of Jesus' death? If he did not sufficiently answer our debt to God, what makes us think anything that we might add would help? Temporal punishment in purgatory undermines the cross of Christ, admitting that his cross wasn't sufficient enough for our salvation. In fact, if we add our works of righteousness to Christ's merits, we nullify everything that Jesus did. Basically, what we're saying is, here, Jesus, let me help you with my salvation. I've really got this. In Paul's words, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Indeed, purgatory preaches a different gospel, one that can't save but can only condemn. Well, that's all we have for today. Thanks for joining me and thanks to Steve Dine behind the camera as we continue our work to stamp out spiritual malnutrition one episode at a time. You be of good cheer.